Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we bring you an interview with Nicole Atkins. She grew up around the music scene of Asbury Park, New Jersey, and started creating her own music in New York City in the early 2000s. Throughout the course of her career, her musical approach has combined 50s-style crooning with psychedelia and soul, all of which combined to create a really unique voice. Her first album, Neptune City, came out in 2007. She tells us about the experience of being courted by two huge record labels and how Rick Rubin altered the course of her first release. We talked about the albums she's made in Sweden, Brooklyn, Muscle Shoals, and Nashville. Her latest album, Italian Ice, is an ode to the New Jersey boardwalk, and she described it as a collaboration of all of her friends. We talk pretty openly about the struggles she's had and how making music now makes her feel better than ever. After the interview, you'll hear Nicole perform absolutely stunning versions of her songs Forever, Captain, and Mind Eraser. Listeners of the show know that you can see videos of all the artists' performances on our show page, but I really encourage you to check out the beautiful videos Nicole made of these performances. We'll link to that. And you can also see a Spotify playlist based on the conversation in the show notes. And I want to quickly encourage you to check out Sunset Lake CBD. There's a lot of CBD companies out there, but Sunset Lake is among the best that I've tried. If you're not sure about CBD and whether it's worth giving it a try, let me tell you a quick story. I started by being a little skeptical of CBD, but now I use it every day. It helps me feel less stressed out, less overwhelmed, and more relaxed. You should give it a shot. It's a crazy world, and we could all use a little relaxation. Get 15% off your first order when you go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15, and that's in the show notes as well. Now let's get into this interview with Nicole Atkins. All right, I'm here with Nicole Atkins. Hi, Nicole. Hi, what's up? Nice to talk to you. You too. We have a lot to talk about. We want to talk about your latest album, which came out in May, Italian Ice, um, and we're going to get there, but I have to start all the way back and ask if you have an earliest musical memory. Earliest musical memory would be watching Tommy from The Who on TV on HBO in probably 1980, 1981. Yeah, my parents... The early days they, of HBO, too. Yeah, I just remember like hearing... And being like, yes, it was great. I just remember being like, what is this? Did you make any connection with it musically? Like, were you like, yeah. you know, this is something I, I want to do or... I just thought I was in the movie. Yeah, I was like three, but like I was in there. I knew all the lyrics, like all the songs. I used to answer the door to the mailman with my blankie wrapped around me like a dress and be like, I'm the acid queen, (laughs) you know, and I had no idea like what it meant. I just thought it was super cool. Was it common for rock music and other music to be playing around your house? Do you remember like a lot of music? Yeah, we always had a lot of music around the house. Um, A lot of uh, old 50s kind of doo-wop and like, I call it Italian music, but like, you know, like Frankie Valli and Mm -hmm. um, Jackie Wilson, even though he's not Italian, but, you know, Italian house music (laughs) 
from yeah. like the 50s and 60s and 70s, um, Jay Giles band. I later found out my dad was a big Zappa fan and like saw him play something like 40 times, he says, but he's probably oh. lying. But yeah, that was big in the house. Show tunes and just like a lot of 60s rock, you know, like the Rascals and like this magic moment, like <laughs> yeah. kind of like romantic beach rock and roll. Yeah. And, well, it used to be um, called, like, oldies, right? Yeah, that, like, Cousin Brucey CB 101.5 stuff was big at my house. I love it. I still love it. And I think a lot of that comes through in your music. Yes. For sure. Do you think that, like, in the 80s growing up on the Jersey Shore was, do you think that that nostalgic kind of music was holding on longer there than in other parts of the country? Because I grew up in Ohio, and I don't remember hearing a lot of that, like, particularly the doo-wop and the kind of, like, Italian music that you were referring to. I think that it hung on in the Jersey Shore a lot because, you know, it's kind of timeless music. So when there's families on the beach, like in places that are restaurants or hospitality, vacation-y type places, they'll play that music because it seems like summer and it doesn't really go out of style. And like, you'll never get a kid, you know, not bopping along to like a Frankie Valley song or like a Roy Orbison song. They never say, turn this off. But if you go like into the 80s or 90s or 2000s, they'll be like, ew, I hate this. You know, if like Shania Twain's on, like they'll be like, ew. But if like the big bopper, no kid was ever like, yuck, the big bopper, because it's fun. Yeah, it's interesting. It is like sort of timeless in a way that like Sinatra is in the same way and some of those people from that era. But there's so much other music that just seems to come and go. Yeah, I guess it's like the difference between like, what's it called? Herman's Hermits and the Beatles. Right, right, right. Or like Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen. There's iconic and there's successful. Bon Jovi will never be iconic. It's early in the interview to ask a question like this, but why do you think that is? Probably because he operates artistically from a mode of money or fame rather than just who his real self as a singular human is. Hmm. You're a big Bruce fan. I'd become a big Bruce fan. I didn't grow up a big Bruce fan. I avoided him just because being from like Neptune City and Asbury Park, like it was all Bruce Springsteen cover bands, all Bruce all the time. I always wanted to find something that everybody wasn't into, you know. But then when I got older and I I saw one of his practice shows, I was like, okay, I get it. That was crazy. It was like a three-hour practice show. (laughs) So crazy. Yeah. So you think that there's a clear parallel with like passion and doing it for the music versus like trying to pursue music for some other reason? Yeah, like doing it for the music and the people rather than doing it for financial gain or what's in style. You know, it's like Bon Jovi would have never made a country record if that wasn't where all the money was at the time. Yeah. You know, I'm totally going to get a cease and desist from John Bon. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) I don't know if he'll be listening. So with your parents playing a lot of music, was there something that you discovered on your own that you remember, like making a big impact on you, an album or, or artist? Yeah, I feel like I had a lot of those. Like after Tommy was, um, it was a cartoon called Rock and Rule. It's a cartoon with Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and Debbie Harry. It's on YouTube. It's pretty crazy. And Debbie Harry is like a super hot cartoon mouse in New York. And this old rock star that's kind of like David Bowie-ish is looking for the perfect voice. And he finds Debbie Harry and he like tries to possess her. And like, I don't know. Yeah, it's epic. I've never heard of that. That's insane. 
I, I didn't even know that they were the people in it until like a few years ago. But I just like would watch it for some reason. It was always on TV and I'd like learn all the songs. But um, I think the first thing that I found that I thought was like my own thing was Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, because the songs in there are pretty rock and roll. And I just remember yeah. like seeing it on TV one night and like, you know, seeing people in drag and like, you know, meatloaf as like a greaser and just like, whoa, <laughs> what is this? Did your parents, like, did they get you into early music lessons, um, anything like that? No, I never did any music lessons. But um, when I was, uh, I guess I was seven, um, we moved to a different house. And my babysitter was a metalhead. I guess it was like 1986 or 1987, primetime, a hair metal. And everything she did, I did. I was like, make me an Ozzy Osbourne mixtape, please. But take off all the songs that mention God or the devil, because I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> I went to Catholic school. Yeah, and uh, awesome. my dad um, at the time gambled a lot, very poorly. So um, he lost a lot of money, but we had front row seats to all the shows and suites for free every weekend. And I saw Donnie and Marie Osmond, and I hated them. They're smiling too much. This is totally weird. These songs are dusty. And they came up, and Donnie's like, What's your name? And I was like, Nicole. And he's like, come on up here, Nicole. Let's everybody take a look at Nicole. And I'm like, what is happening? Wow. And then he's like, and they call it puppy love. And everybody's like, aw. And I, I just was like, what the? F and he wasn't looking at me at all. So I just started like throwing the goat at him and being like, ah. And like sticking my tongue out and being like, ah. And then he turns around. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, Meh. And then I was like, I want to be on stage. Wow. This is fun. I found a picture of it the other day. <laughs> My whole cheeks are blown up like a little monkey. Like, Wow. <laughs> so what happened after that musically? Were you singing? Were you practicing? Did you? Was there a point where you were like, I'm going to do this? The first time I got into like modern rock stuff was this girl was visiting for the beach for the weekend. And um, she gave me a Violent Femmes and Depeche Mode and B-52s mixtape. Like, I was listening to it, and I was like, this is cool. I feel cool walking around to this. Then I went to high school, and I noticed that, like, I wasn't, like, the, you know, cutest chick in my class, but, like, I was funny. And the boys in my grade, they had, like, an after-school band where they played um, Led Zeppelin and Steve Miller band songs, which is weird. But, uh... I got the Led Zeppelin box set for my confirmation. So, like, I never was in a band then, but, like, music was always in my thing. Like, I took the name Veronica from that Elvis Costello song for my confirmation mm -hmm. name because there were no rock and roll saints. So I was like, oh, Veronica, Elvis <laughs> Costello, that'll do. I just figured if I could learn how to play guitar, I could be in the boys' band. And then, like, I could hang out with the dudes. So I found my uncle's guitar in my attic. He passed away when he was 13. And um, my mom, I was like, whoa, we have a guitar. This is so cool. And uh, she was like, you know, don't bring it down or mess with it because it was Dominic's, you know, and like she didn't know how serious I was about it. Mm -hmm. And um, I would just go up in the attic. Like I found a tablature book, a Grateful Dead tablature book and learned like Uncle John's band like really badly and um, some Neil Young songs. And I played them for my grandma and she got me guitar lessons. So I, I went into high school with, um, learning how to play guitar. And I know that you, um, you've you talked before about going to see the dead and seeing fish. Were those the concert experiences that started to like make you want to see more live music or, or were there such stuff before that? That was the kickoff for sure. Um, 
when I was in grammar school, like I went and saw like 10,000 Maniacs and Tori Amos and they might be giants. But I remember um, I had a dead comic shirt and I bought it just because I like the artwork. And um, this fry cook on the beach, you know, he was like super cool, but kind of surly and mean. And he was like, hey, cool shirt. You like the dead? And I was like, oh, yeah, I love them. You know, and then like, I mean, I only knew a couple songs, but he was like, you want to go see Jerry Garcia band on Halloween at um, Meadowlands? And my parents let me go. Like, I was, like, wow. 13, and I got to go, and I didn't have a ticket, and I just remember he's like, put up your finger, you say, I'm looking for a miracle, and I was like, I felt so dumb, but then somebody was like, yeah, here you go, <laughs> gave me a 12th row seat, and it wow. was awesome, and I was like, and everybody was just, like, partying, and I was like, wow. And I had a balloon in the parking lot, and that was crazy, yeah. you know, <laughs> and then life was a blur. <laughs> what did you like about those shows? Like, in terms of the early concerts that you saw? I just loved how they felt like you were on another planet. You know, it's like you have your home life, you have your school life, but then you go to the show, there's this whole, like, alternate universe. You know, like, yeah. the parking lot is, like, little villages of people. And there's, like, the disco people and then, like, the gnarly people and, like, I don't know, like, the healthy bread people. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's all these different, like, subcultures of people in one tiny space. And I also, like, love doing art and selling art. And I was like, wow, I never have to get a summer job for anybody else. I can just sell my artwork in the parking lot. This is great. It was actually how I got into college. Like, I, my grades weren't good enough to go to art school in North Carolina. And I showed them um, this, like, fish T-shirt that I drew and would sell in the parking lot. Don't sue me, fish. Um, I'm poor. Yeah, we'll keep that up. Oh, whatever. <laughs> but anyway, it was it was my own design, and they were like, "Oh, you're like an entrepreneur," and they like admired my entrepreneurial spirit and wow. went to the dean and got me into the college, which worked out well. So you went to UNC Charlotte. Mm-hmm. In college, were you performing? Were you writing music? I wasn't writing music yet in college, but I had a bunch of different bands with people um, as like a rhythm guitarist or a singer. And like, it was mostly cover bands. I was in like a funk band. I remember they didn't want a girl singer, so they changed the band name to Teabag knowing that I would quit. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Wow. I was like, I can't sing in a band called Teabag. Yeah. <laughs> that's sucks. really, that's too bad. Well, They're probably. Who, who's sorry now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so that, like, that was when I moved back to Asbury Park, and um, I ran into a guy that owned this club called The Saint. I was like, I really want to play a show, and he said, you know, we only do original music. Do you write your own music? And so I lied to him and told him yes, and I had a gig in two weeks. So with, like, that deadline of time, I started writing, and it was funny because my music doesn't sound anything like Guided by Voices. But, like, I had Guided by Voices, Under the Bushes, Under the Stars, and Wilco, Yankee Hotel, Foxtrot, like, stuck in the tape player in my car. It wouldn't come out. And, like, I just remember listening to Cutout Witch, and I'd, like, written my first, like, three songs, and I was driving down, like, Route 18, like, really fast, listening to that song, and I was like, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I just, like, had this, like, weird moment that I always remember that stretch of road and that song. You know, and that, that went on for, you know, years. I didn't do music professionally or professionally where it was my only job till 2005. 
I had, you know, a mural company, and I paint murals and, like, sing at bars and sing at, like, Irish pubs for, like, four hours and have mm-hmm. to, like, say last call for sushi at the Irish pub. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I only knew, like, my own songs and, like, Sebado songs and Dinosaur Jr. songs and, like... I played in Asbury Park where, like, I just got berated for not knowing any Bruce songs forever. (laughs) But I was never worried. Everything works out. You just got to keep doing it. You know, it might be completely different than how you envision it. So it's kind of more like try to focus on the work and not what it's going to be like. How did that New York era, like, between when you got there and when you, like you said, you started really becoming a professional musician... Sounds like you were promoting and playing and and booking and hanging out. What were those years like and what did you learn about music during those years? Those years, like looking back now, I wish I enjoyed them more cuz I'm like, man, that was such a good time. <laughs> I think if I wasn't drinking, like I probably would have had a much better time. I mean, the drinking still was really fun until it wasn't, you know, but uh <laughs> but yeah, I my friend um I had this friend that was living in New Jersey from Australia and he was like, "We got to go up and do the open mic at the Sidewalk Cafe." And um they were saying it was like where Beck got his start and Jeff Buckley and the anti-folk movement, like, mm-hmm. and I was like, what is anti-folk? Is, like, mm-hmm. anti-folk, like, metal? You know, I never heard of, like, Daniel Johnston or Jonathan Richmond or any of those people before, and these are, like, the heroes of anti-folk. And I remember walking in, and um, I saw the Moldy Peaches, and they were in costume, and I'm like, who is this? Like, it was just so weird. Like, and all these songwriters, like, some of them, like, were, like, normal songs, and then others were, like... I've come to party, like, dressed like a Viking. And, uh-huh. like, you know, I saw Kurt Vile, and I was like, man, that's a cool last name. <laughs> yeah. And it was yeah. just all, I saw Regina Spector, and she did, like, a song called The One String Blues. She was just so weird and, like, wacky, but, like, gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like, she was, like, a little Russian Bjork. And um, I got a gig the first time I played. Like, they were like, do you guys think we should book her? And it was three in the morning, and everybody was like, yeah. <laughs> I slept in my car, because I didn't know you could drink till four in the morning in, in New York. Mm-hmm, I was like, mm-hmm. this place is magic. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was magical, you know? And then I got a phone call from the Avett brothers, because I went to college with them, and they wanted me to book them some shows in New Jersey and in New York. So then, like, I became a music booker. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I also knew at the beginning of me writing songs that I was happy that I could write a song mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I wasn't writing a song in a unique style yet. So I just wanted to, like, hang out with everybody. So I would put together these shows and, like, little mini, like, you know, songwriters nights and festival nights. And, um promote other people like Regina or Langhorn Slim or the Avett Brothers, but still put myself on the bill, you know, but it was easier for me to talk about other people's music passionately because they had found their style. And I knew I would at some point, but it wasn't until like 2004 or 2003, four that I did. I want to jump forward to the debut album, Neptune City, which came out in 2007. So this is the story as I understand it. So you're talking about hanging out in New York and doing these open mics and getting booked at shows. And then a couple of years later, you're in a bidding war. You sign with Columbia. You go to record an album in Sweden. And it's supposed to come out. And Rick Rubin wants it to be remastered. And so it gets pushed back. But it comes out in 2007. I mean, you're, you know, record labels, bidding war, Rick Rubin going to Sweden to record an album. This sounds like an insane time. And also, were you like, this is my dream come into reality? Um, yes and no. 
the whole um, getting signed by a major label and then having everybody get fired. Like, mm-hmm. I was originally making my record with Lenny Kay in the East Village. Hmm. And um, I love Lenny Kay. Like, he's just he's just so sweet. And, like, every, every take we did, he'd be in the window dancing, like, all right, my dance moves are going to make your performance happen. <laughs> and, like, I, I just remember, like, a bass player that was playing with me, like, making fun of him. And I was like... I just knew, like, you're not my people. <laughs> we got to fire you now. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, everybody got fired at Columbia, and it was just like living in New York now, making a record, and they didn't want me to make it with the guy, David, that did my first demos, and that helped me find my sound, which caused a lot of stress, and luckily that friendship is mended now. Then I talked to Tor Johansson from Sweden, and, like, I remember, like, he called me, and I was, like, refinishing furniture that I was painting mm-hmm. in New Jersey, and I'm like, wow, I'm a major label artist now, still painting fucking olive trees on furniture for Italian families. <laughs> this sucks. And he was like, your music reminds me of dolls and children and how they're creepy, but really beautiful. And I was like, you're my dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I went out to Sweden, and... uh we did the song The Way It Is, and it went really great. And then I went back, and I was there for a month, and it was like the dark time in Sweden. So, and everybody, everybody was getting broken up with and on drugs. And so it was mm-hmm. like really dark out, and I was crying every day, but it was also because of the language barrier. Every time I had an idea, they would go like, shh, like this little shush thing that I thought meant like whatever, but it really means sure. Because <laughs> when I went back and did my third record with them, they yeah. were, they did it, and I was like, "No, you can't fucking do that to me this time." And they were like, "Wait, what? This?" Sh-? And I'm like, "Yeah." And they just started dying laughing. They're oh, like, "That's man. why she was crying." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Rick Rubin. So the record's supposed to come out June something, and I was in an Amex commercial that I felt weird about doing because you know, mm-hmm. of course, like kid of the '90s, you know, it's not cool to like take corporate money, but also when you've got like six thousand dollars in parking tickets in New York City and <laughs> student loans, and you've never had a credit card before because you can't get one, it was a good way to get one. <laughs> From Amex, I was like, the the funny thing was like, and they paid me a a butt ton of money that like I wish I actually did something with, but it really just went back to paying all my debt. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. was just like, cool, I'm gonna be debt free now. The album was supposed to be released the same day as the commercial drop Mm -hmm. that came out during the U.S. Open. And my manager called me saying, Rick Rubin's at the label now, and he wants to hold on to the record to to fix something. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, no. And she was like, don't worry, we're going to fix this. And then the next day, her mother died unexpectedly. So it was her first time at Bonnaroo with the band The National and her mother passes away, and Rick Rubin's, like, holding my record hostage. And I just, like, I'm not a dick. Like, if your mother died, I'm giving you your space. Yeah. You know, so I kind of just had to chill. And um, the commercial came out, and I was, like, the number two most Googled thing on Google Uh under Merv Griffin because he died. And everybody thought I was an actress. Anybody outside of, you know, the Lower East Side or the East Village or Brooklyn, like, they were just like, who's this? actress you know Mm -hmm. and I was just like all my press got canceled and um you know Rick Rubin just like decided to call me like six months later and be like we're gonna put your record out next week hey how you doing like I'll say this about him he's a charlatan and that's all I'll say he is a charlatan and um I think everything happens for a reason for sure but uh yeah fuck him (laughs) 
So all he did was put some uh, French horn on a song that was an album track and took the mastering off. And the original, if you can find it, sounds really good. Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing all that. <laughs> what What did it feel like once that album was out there? Exciting. I mean, it came out the day um, that we were on Letterman, the day that it came out. And then after that, we went to Union Pool and it was mm-hmm. Mischief Night. So we did a Dress as Your Favorite Movie Monster Halloween show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we were the Lost Boys and we did the Lost Boys soundtrack. Oh, and then nice. my, yeah, my guitarists um, had another band called Hand of Doom where they played uh, Black Sabbath songs and dressed like wizards. And we rolled the TV out onto the stage at Union Pool so we could watch Letterman. And I just remember there's a picture of all of us like dressed in ghoul makeup watching this like TV that was wheeled out. And I just like went backstage really fast. It just like caught me. I started crying because I was just like, wow. And I look and my bass player's over at the other end of backstage crying too. And he's like, it got me. I'm like, it got me. That's so cool. And and also like a year, whatever, however many years, two years worth of anticipation, right? Yeah. I mean, I wrote the music in 2004 when I was like living in Charlotte because like New York had kind of like beat me, you know? And so I I moved back to where I went to college and um, lived in like this art warehouse and I would drink to fall asleep because there was like a weird rat situation, but I'd wake up with all of these lyrics written on my typewriter. Whoa. That I didn't remember. I was a blackout drinker, and I, mm-hmm. I didn't remember writing them, and I was just like, wow, I sound smart. <laughs> we got to get to the Goodnight Ronda Lee album, because I want to talk to you about that and that kind of transition, because you've, you've talked about the drinking a lot, and I want to get there. But I also want to first ask you about your sound, because... We started this conversation talking about the kind of sound of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And I'm just curious, like, at what point did you find a sound that you were like, this is my sound? Like, did it come on the first album or did it take a while for you to feel comfortable with with your sound? I think it came on the first demo for sure. But I mean, writing wise, it's always been there because there's a lot of elements I think that I like to put in my music. You know, like I think when any artist is thinking of what they want to sound like, they need to think about like their family story, how that influences them, like the movies they like, you know, the different um, geographical places, you know, you know, the way Italians grieve went into that. There was like a lot of death in my family when I was young and like I just remember like my great-grandmother's house like dark shadows on the tv 24-7 religious relics and plastic furniture she's blind and looks like the pope what does that sound like <laughs> I hated going there because I was just like oh my god it's so scary <laughs> or like my family had a landscaping company everybody hanging out at the back of the truck during work and drinking Budweiser nibs you know like I just like kind of think about what what what's the appropriate musical sounds for different scenes. So I always think of music in movies. Like if I can't see the scene when I'm writing a song, I don't really finish that song. Interesting. Arrangement-wise, vocally, instrumentally, how did you approach that? Because there is like a specific sound, and it's not all your songs. I mean, I think your sound is pretty diverse, but there's a lot of the songs, like the song A Little Crazy um, has this like very vintage sound. And I'm just curious, how do you approach instrumentation and, and vocal arrangements differently when you're trying to get that sound? The melodies always come to me first. 
So I write my songs without an instrument, and I'll sing them. Sometimes what I think is a vocal melody will actually end up being a guitar melody or a string line. You know, everything kind of like, it's like a puzzle. You kind of unpack it all. A song like Mind Eraser that's on my new record. Mm -hmm. When I sat down with Carl from My Morning Jacket to write it, um, I, I had this, these dreams I know too well. Like, I thought that was a chorus, like, of a Roy Orbison type, like, la-da-da-da-da-da. And then he starts playing Radiohead chords under it. And I'm like, whoa, that's a pre-chorus. And this song sounds nothing like Roy Orbison. It sounds like Beck. So it's like, it'll start out as one idea in my head, but wherever it ends up going, that's the thing. It's like, I never try to twist any of my writing to make it something it doesn't want to be. Is that a scary process or no? It can be, but no, no, it's it's fun. You know, it's like it's like watching a movie. Ooh, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to this part? I'm kind of struggling with that now because I do have so many different sounds that I love that I want to explore. Like I love Charlie Rich, Sinatra, croony stuff, and I love like 60s beatnik stuff like Mina, Manzanini, mm-hmm. and I also love like punk rock and, you know, like that kind of like early 80s B-52 stuff, you know, like I could go in so many different ways, but it's like I never know which way it's going to be until I'm in the studio. Like I didn't even know that Italian Ice was a Jersey Shore summer record until like midway through in the studio. I'm like looking at all these songs and I'm like thinking like, wow, this sounds like if I walked from my beach towel to the boardwalk and listening to everybody else's jam boxes. Because there were mm-hmm. so many different styles on there, but they were all music you'd hear on vacation. Similar to what you were saying earlier about your career, like you try not to push things until they feel right. Yeah, even like with Columbia, like towards the end of it, they were really wanting me to be something that I had no interest at all in being. And with music, like I don't want to contribute to, you know, the static of shit music out there. Mm-hmm. Like I'd rather be like, lower class and making a paycheck painting a house than making a paycheck that's huge making shit music. I love music so much that like I don't want to muddy it up just to make a buck. Do you feel like you've gotten to that point where it feels authentic but also you don't have to paint furniture? I mean, I do paint furniture still once in a while because, like, I like nice things, you know? Like, it feels very good. It's like, you know, like, I don't own a house, but I feel like I have a lot of money because I get to be in the room with people. Like, that's Mm -hmm. really all I ever wanted. Like, I just want to be in the room with people that make things that I'm like, and I get to ask them, like, how'd you do that? Show me. You know, like, I met Elvis Costello, like, last year, and I told him I had this idea for a song that we should write together, thinking he'd be like, yeah, fuck off. And then he wrote the song, (laughs) you know, and then he had me sing on it. Yeah, Yeah, so I just kind of, like, I'm very open to, like, the synchronicity or those moments that happen. Like, I got my eyes and ears peeled, and those things, they're not lost on me. Those are the things that make me feel rich, you know? Thanks for sharing that. Can we jump to Goodnight Ronda Lee, which is a 2017 yeah. album? I think um, you've, you've talked about this a lot, about where this album ended up and why, which people can read about, because I don't want to make you go through like the same story you've told a bunch of times. Yeah. But up to that point, had you felt like you were avoiding anything in your songwriting? Because it seems like you're drinking it and the recovery period opened up a new door for you. But 
up to that point, did you think that you were missing something or, or how did that like revelation come to you? I think that uh, a lot of things stemming from what happened with my first record kind of affected how I approached my art. You know, having a record that came out and just like a really, you know, it was like every every roadblock that could have been thrown was thrown. And then having uh, the label be like, okay, we're going to, you know, pitch you as this grand dame kind of Shirley Bassey person. And then they sign Adele. And then it's like, who am I? Mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and then, you know, Lana Del Rey shows up and they're like, everyone, oh, it sounds like Neptune City, mm-hmm. you know. And mm-hmm. like, I just kind of thought like, okay, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it wrong. Mm. Like, so I felt like I had to change my style up, you know. And, and that was the thing, too. It's like even like having people like that are younger come up and start to like kind of do your style. I've never been interested really in sticking to one style. Like, I want to make it, you know, evolve. But I was almost afraid to write music because mm. I was afraid that it wouldn't be good. My second record, you know, was just like, it, it was not a fun record to write for a multitude of reasons. But the third one, you know, was more of a collaboration between me and Tor. Yeah, you went back to Sweden for that, yeah. Yeah, because uh, Hurricane Sandy happened and he was like, oh, you need to make a third record. And I was like, well, I don't have a way to pay for it. And he's like... Columbia paid me enough for your first one, so you had a free one. You get two for one. <laughs> so I went out there, and um, he just showed me snippets of what he had and what I had, and we were both listening to lots of prog rock. So we just spent a month together in dark-ass Sweden making prog music, or what we mm-hmm. thought was prog music. But it wasn't until Goodnight Ronda Lee where it was like how I felt with Neptune City, where it was like I was writing songs like out of like kind of complete like desperation, like this is all I have right now. I knew I needed to quit drinking. It was like thing after thing after thing of like, holy crap, like I'm treating myself like shit. Waking up and, you know, hearing the things that I could have said to people, being just like completely at odds with like who I am. Like I'm not mean. And I, I like to write in a journal. If I got something to say, I'm probably going to tell you. But if it's something too bad to tell you, I'm going to write it in my journal. I'm not going to, like, corner you at a bar and be like, listen, motherfucker. (laughs) You know, I mean, I might look real tough. But, (laughs) but yeah, and I just, it was something I I was trying to do and couldn't do. And I I really like my husband. (laughs) And uh, I want him to have a good life. Mm -hmm. And so I would relapse and write these songs, like, you know, Rhonda Lee or Colors, you know, just like in these completely destroyed states, you know, it was the only thing that I could do that was a positive. And then right after I made the record, you know, I, it was nice to be able to be like, I have no label right now. I'm making this record myself. The boys that are helping me make this record were a big fan of my first record. It felt like I was finally like in a recording space where here's a bunch of musicians that are really good, but they also have respect for me. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's Mm -hmm. like they treated me like an equal. I could actually say, okay, I want the tone in this room to be present on the recording. I think that's why I like mostly 60s and 70s music is because the tone is warm. And I wasn't able to have that on my records because I wasn't really in charge because I wasn't the one paying for them. And then after the record came out, I fell in a sinkhole. (laughs) So that that was the big transitional moment where it was like I had a lot of anxiety my whole life. And I was always afraid to approach people and talk to them. I think that's why I thought I needed alcohol mm-hmm. so I could talk to people, which is not true. I uh, I like to talk, 
but um, <laughs> to anybody. Uh, so after that, like, I realized, like, I could have, it was a 10-foot deep hole. Like, I could have hit my tailbone. I could have been paralyzed. I could have, it could have been so much worse than it was. But you literally fell into a sinkhole. Yeah, I literally fell into. I thought you meant, into, like, like, mentally. No. Yeah, everybody no. says that. They're like, spiritually? I'm like, <laughs> No. I was walking in a parking lot, and they didn't have it, like, roped off, and I just woke up in the bottom of it. So my rock bottom is rock bottom. Like, literally. Was that the moment? That was a moment. That you were like, this is, I can't, I have to stop? Yeah, but, I mean, I relapsed after that, too, once, and that was the moment. But, like, this was the real transitional moment that I wasn't even able to think about until a few weeks after, you know, because I was just like, wow, you could die at any minute. You could die in the bottom of a fucking sinkhole in Knoxville at a fucking Super 8. That sucks. You have no say. So in the meantime, what the fuck do you have to be worried about? Do your thing. You want to do your thing? Go do your thing. You want to talk to that person? Go talk to them. You want to tell that person you like their music and want to write with them? Go do it. The worst they could do is ignore you. So what? You know, like none of it matters. So the timing of this is interesting because you you wrote a lot of these songs on that album before you got sober. Well, it was all during while I was trying to. Did like the alias of Rhonda Lee, was that like a device that you used? And do you think it was helpful? Me and my friends always have like nicknames, you know, but the sound of the music, I was like, you know, I want this to sound like a classic record. And... Um, it was originally going to be called This One's for Rhonda Lee because Rhonda Lee is such an old school like kind of name. And so like when I, whenever I would bowl, my my nickname would be Rhonda Lee because R-H-O. I was like, Ro, Ro's going to be rolling tonight, <laughs> you know, and then that just kind of became like my drunk bowling name. But uh, I thought if I called the record This One's for Rhonda Lee, it would let people kind of know that it was going to be an old school sounding record. Then the day before I went to record the album, me and Chris Isaac wrote this song that kept saying, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight to the band. And I didn't know what that meant. I kept trying to figure out, like, what it meant, like, say goodnight to the band. And we came up with this, I see you laughing, but you're laughing too loud. It seemed like a mean song about, like, a girl that found her way backstage. And you're like, okay, goodnight, bye. And then I was in Detroit, and um, I went to this coffee shop called Shinola that was having, like, they're like, if you buy a notepad, we'll emboss it for free. And I was just like, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, say goodnight, Rhonda Lee. And I was like, whoa, it fits. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I had them emboss goodnight, Rhonda Lee on this notepad. They're like, what does this mean? I'm like, it's going to be the title track for my album that I'm going to write the lyrics for right now. <laughs> <laughs> And I did. I sat and I wrote it. It came out in like 10 minutes. We should talk about the new album, but I kind of want to talk about it in the context of a sense of place. You started in New Jersey. You spent time in North Carolina, New York. You're in Nashville now. This was recorded at Muscle Shoals. Like, it, there's a lot of different places that, I guess, make up your music and your your life. Yeah. You know, the record is always an amalgamation of the people you have playing it with you. You know, the vibe of everybody, how they get along. And um, this was kind of scary for me because 
my record labels down in Muscle Shoals, and they were like, you know, I want you to make this. They saw me sing at Spooner Oldham's birthday party, and I did that because I'm friends with his daughter, Roxanne. <laughs> and when I was binky grip tight from the Dap Kings, he's always been a good friend of mine from New York, and he came down to Nashville to write um, some songs for his solo record with me. And so Roxanne was in town, and she's like, yeah, it's my dad's birthday. We're throwing a party for him at the Shoals Theater. And then me and Binky were like, we're going to go. And then he ended up having to go home. But I went, and she's like, do you think you could sing a couple songs? Because um, Candy Staten was going to be there, but she couldn't be there. And so I just met all those guys, and we got along so well. It was like, I mean, I still like get texts from like William Bell on Easter. Like, happy Easter. And I like drew a pet portrait for Charlie Hodges. And I'm like... This is crazy, but they're just, you know, everybody's just people. And that's the great thing about, like, sidemen and players, mm. like true mm -hmm. sidemen. They're all about the hang. I know that a lot of front people can, like, go really inward, and I respect that, but, like, I just like the hang. Even, like, all that, like, shitty driving and shitty gigs, I'm like, I'm just here for the banter. We're not getting paid fuck all, but <laughs> banter's good. But so when, when my label was like, we want you to entertain the idea of making this record in Muscle Shoals, and I was like, that comes very loaded, I think, because a lot of people are like going to Muscle Shoals or going to Memphis and being like, okay, I'm the new Dusty and wherever, and I have no interest in that. I love Dusty Springfield, but like I just only have an interest in making unique things that are reflective of me and not a mirror of something else. So I think Roxanne asked me to come do this show. That's how it happened. Binky, you were sitting with me, so you have to come play guitar. You know, you have no choice in the matter. And then I was at Jim Sclavunos, uh, who um, him and I have a band together, a duets band. I was at his house in London. He plays drums with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And I look on his wall, and he's got a picture of Muscle Shoals in a frame. And I was like, oh, have you ever been there? And he's like, no, I've always wanted to go. I'm like, do you want to play bongos on my record? You know, and like, I was writing a song with Britt from Spoon, and he was like, where are you going to record this? And I told him, he's like, wow, that sounds like a dream. And I was like, do you want to come? And he's like, yeah. And he flew out. I think if you were in my hangout path between when we decided to make the record and the actual date we went to do it, you might have been on the record. That's cool. I was going to ask about the collaboration because there's so many people who you've collaborated with. It was really just whoever I was hanging out with at the time and if it seemed right. You know, like I sang with Hamilton Lighthouser for his uh, Cafe Carlisle residency. And I had this song that became In the Splinters, but at the time it was called um, Sleep No More. Hmm. It was just like a working title because I was singing at this theater show called Sleep No More when I wrote it. But I always thought it sounded too theatrical and I didn't... You know, I didn't want to make a schmaltzy musical song. But then I heard his voice, and I imagined him singing it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a badass rock song. And then I was like, will you help me write this song? What was it like writing music after you were sober and once you were sort of beyond? Was it intimidating? No, no. It, all the things that I thought would be really intimidating became like the least of my worries. Hmm. I stopped painting when I started touring, and I didn't pick up a paintbrush for, like, 16 years. And then um, a year into, you know, not drinking, I started drawing again, and then I started drawing all the time. And now it's like if I don't draw every day, I feel weird. I feel like I missed out. You know, I used to always feel like I was missing out if I didn't go to the bar or the party. And now I feel like I'm missing out if I don't get, like, some hang time in with my sketch pad. 
you know. Or even like being at a festival, you play your set, but you're there the whole day. That's a lot of talking. But if I go and watch somebody else play and like draw them while they're playing, I get to hear the music, remember the songs, remember why I love them to begin with. I get a good drawing out of it that I give to the person. And when you have a sketchbook in your hand, nobody talks to you. (laughs) It's great. And it gives you a break. Yeah. You know, like it just like lets you calm down a little bit and not feel fried. So and then with music, it's just fun. It brought me back to remembering why I did music in the first place, because it's really fun. Have you reflected on like your experience as a musician, as a female, given how male dominated it is? And do you feel like your journey has been affected and in, in how, if, if so? I mean, I think about that a lot. I try to not, you know, but there's sometimes where it's just like, man, I remember the first time I really thought about it hard was when I met Jim Sclavunos and we, you know, we met and we, we were so different. You know, he's this, you know, older man that lives in London and plays with the bad seeds and he's six foot nine and he was in the cramps and the whole like New York no wave scene, which at first I was like, what is no wave? This is terrible. And then like, I'm like, wait, I love this. <laughs> and I said to him, I just felt like, you know, I always thought like, okay, if I was a man, this would be a lot easier or people might listen to me or my band might respect me more. And I was like, Jim, how do I be the man? (laughs) He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm trying to figure out how to lead my band. And I feel like I need to be like the man to do it because it is such a boys club. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, well, you know, like bands are like mafias. There's a boss There's always, like, a hierarchy, you know, and, like, some people have been able to do it, like Bjork or PJ Harvey or Patti Smith, Mm -hmm. you know, but it really all comes down to, like, self-respect. If you respect yourself, and that is really hard. It's a hard thing because Mm -hmm. especially, like, when you're, like, I always thought that, like, to respect yourself meant to be conceited, you know, and uh, I don't want to be conceited, but it's it's the least conceited thing you can do, and I think that... um, once you surround yourself with people that respect you as well, you find that you're taken more seriously. Even with like studio situations, I can produce and arrange and work with people that worked with Aretha Franklin and whoever, and they listen to me and I listen to them and I know they're the right people to be in that room. Even though it's like you get a guy from Spoon, The Bad Seeds, Midlake, and the staple singers and Aretha Franklin in a room, that doesn't make any sense, but it totally does because they're my friends and they're all great at what they do and they work well together. You know, we wouldn't have found that out if we didn't do this record. Now that it's out there, how have you been spending your creative energy and and what's next for you? Did you just start writing again? I mean, how have you spent the last several months? I, I realized with Rhonda Lee that I would always get in trouble with previous records of like, you know, okay, now you got to do another record. And it's like, well, shit, I've been on tour and working and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of like lose that flex. So I don't want to lose the flex. Mm. Um, but I've been, just been, you know, working on the live stream variety shows that we've been doing. And that's been fun. You know, we got um, Pele from The Hives plays my fake therapist mm-hmm. and just gives me like really shitty advice and I went out um, fishing, shark fishing with Mickey from Ween. Mm-hmm. Been hanging out with him a lot, like on on Zoom and stuff. And we write some really dirty songs together. It's nice. fun. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've been getting a lot of creative work done. You know, we've been continuing to like make videos for the record. And there's a video coming out on Wednesday for Mind Eraser. 
And uh, then just taking advantage of the time that I have home. And um, yeah, I've been talking to Elvis Costello a lot, which has been very fun. And he's really generous with his storytelling and, you know, turning me on to some music that I haven't heard before. Um, I, I did a I had a free day at Electric Ladyland to record, and I called Hamilton Lighthouser, and I was like, "What? bring a cover song you want to do. And he brought this song from uh, this old doo-wop duo called Shirley and Lee. And in my head, it just sounded like reggae, and I thought everybody was going to laugh at me. But everybody was like, this is awesome. And uh, so I sent it to Elvis knowing that he did the specials record, and he was like, this is great. I'm going to send this over to Linville from the specials. I'm totally getting his name wrong, but I was like, ugh. <laughs> and then he played on it. He put some guitar on it, and then he just emailed me yesterday, like, what did Nicole think? Did she like it? I'm like, this is crazy. Wow. That's you know, amazing. so I'm just kind of just going with the flow. Well, you, it's, it's, it's gone well. The last question I have is, reflecting on all this, what would the Nicole of today say to Nicole 20 years ago? Which actually is exactly 2000. Maybe the Nicole of 20 years ago would have been in the car on the way back from Big Cypress. Oh, God. <laughs> the darkness. <laughs> um, probably just like, yo, this seems like the worst idea ever, but quit drinking and start digging yourself. You're cool. You're fine. Mm. This has been really fun. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, really nice to talk to you. And now here's Nicole Atkins performing Forever, Captain, and Mind Eraser. And please don't forget to check out the videos after you hear these songs. I'm tired of talking shit Half my brain cell The other half is by me Is it legit or not get over it Baby, kill the underground
If the first thought says my mind's erased I never want, I never want to leave again Spend time in a lion's cage You never go, you never go to sleep again Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love.